change. One in, one out. Jeremy Corbyn is the new leader of the opposition at Westminster, and Tony Abbott is no longer Prime Minister of Australia. What does all that mean for climate change? We're coming to the end of Community Energy Fortnight with events across the country. I'll be reporting on two of them. Will the Supreme Court finally clear the air, and are we going to have a white winter in Britain this year? And then we'll round it all off with a slice of baked Alaska. Yes, I'm Anthony Day, and this is the Sustainable Futures Show. Brought to you without advertising, subscription, subsidy or sponsorship. First of all, it's an ill wind in Scotland. New research has shown for the first time that recent announcements from Whitehall are having a significant impact on investor confidence and their ability to lend to onshore wind farm developers. On behalf of Scottish Renewables, EY, formerly Ernst & Young, carried out a survey of major lenders to the renewable energy sector, which confirmed the industry's concerns that banks had become reluctant to finance projects. The survey targeted a sample of active onshore wind investors, asking them about their willingness to lend to projects in the aftermath of the UK government's announcements to close the support mechanism called the Renewables Obligation, RO, in 2016 instead of 2017 as previously planned. More than half of lenders who responded to the questionnaire said they weren't prepared to lend until the UK Energy Bill had received royal assent, not expected until next year, largely due to the current political and regulatory risk concerning the RO and the lack of guidance on the process and timing of the Energy Bill Amendment through Parliament. Michael Riley, Senior Policy Manager for Scottish Renewables, the industry body for Scotland, said, With the decision to end support a year earlier than planned, around two gigawatts of onshore wind projects in Scotland have been put at risk. These are projects that could bring around £3 billion of investment and provide enough generation to meet the equivalent electricity demand of 1.2 million Scottish homes. If we are to avoid losing the benefits of this scale of development in Scotland, the UK Government must allow those developers that have already made significant progress with their projects to continue them as part of the RO scheme. Matthew Yard Assistant Director at EY said the results of the survey indicate that raising project finance for UK onshore wind RO projects has become more complex, more expensive and increasingly difficult since the announcement of the early closure of the RO. Those banks that have indicated they are considering lending to such projects are now seeking better terms and some form of mitigation against a situation with no RO revenue. As we move closer to the RO accreditation end date, the ongoing uncertainty makes it harder for projects and sponsors to raise senior finance. It is indeed a continuing complaint of the renewables industry that the government's short-term changes to regulations and subsidies make long-term planning and investment very difficult. As part of Community Energy Fortnight, Cooperatives UK presented Celebrate Peer Power in Manchester this week. 
Petra Morris, Projects Officer, opened the event and explained about the Energy Mentoring Scheme, charitably funded by the Esme Fairbairn Foundation. She reminded us that community energy is not a new idea. The Harlock Hill Wind Farm in Cumbria has been owned and operated by the Bay Wind Energy Cooperative since 1997. Next up was Debbie Trebilco, Director of Community Energy England and a member of Whitby-esque Energy. We live in interesting times, she said, trying not to get too upset about the wholesale changes the government is making to green legislation. Objectives for the short term are, are to defend FITs, feed-in tariffs, to promote shared ownership and to help the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, which is the regulating authority for community benefit societies, to help the FCA to better understand community energy. Her longer-term objectives were to plan for a world with no subsidies and to work out the best way of surviving without subsidies as soon as possible. Ideas include tax concessions for investors, direct sales of energy to scheme members, using surpluses for local energy efficiency schemes and pricing to reward savings. Current electricity tariffs generally supply the first hundred or so units at a basic price and any additional units in a period at a lower rate. This benefits larger users. Turning this the other way round would mean that the first units would be cheaper and the additional units would be more expensive. This would work in favour of low users and penalise large users. It could help reduce fuel poverty but it wouldn't help energy companies sell more electricity. At present, the wholesale price of electricity paid by the big six to generators is about four and a half pence per kilowatt hour. The retail price is 11 to 14 pence per kilowatt hour. If community energy schemes were allowed to sell at retail price, the increased revenue would offset the loss of the FIT payments to some extent. Of course, the difference between wholesale and retail prices for electricity is not just profit. There is tax and also the whole cost of maintaining the infrastructure. As already mentioned, the government plans to cut FITs dramatically from January 2016. Tariffs for domestic solar, for example, will fall from 12.47p per kilowatt hour to 1.63 pence per unit, per kilowatt hour. This is still out for consultation, which closes at 11.45 on the 23rd of October next. Clause 17 of the consultation document suggests that there should be a special fit tariff for community energy. If enough people respond to the consultation and highlight this point, maybe it will be adopted. Debbie warned against using template letters Apparently Friends of the Earth had delivered several thousand responses to another consultation, but because they were all templates, the department had been very dismissive of them. If you think you should respond, please write your own letter. And please send a copy to Community Energy England. That's communityenergyengland.org. Community Energy England has established its Community Energy Hub this is a voluntary register of community energy projects and a database of resources for groups at all stages of project development. Find out more at hub.communityenergyengland.org. 
On the 30th of September in Birmingham, Community Energy England presents the Future of Energy Generation Shared Community Ownership. This half-day conference costs £25 for members and £295 for non-members. Here's an example of a community project which they presented. Chase Community Solar was established in response to a request from Cannock Chase Council to install renewable energy on their housing stock. Southern Staffordshire Community Energy already had a track record after installing an 18 kilowatt scheme at St Giles Hospice. Mike Kingham told the conference how members set up Chase Community Solar for the new project. Cannock Council has 5,000 properties, of which 1,000 are bungalows. These were considered the most appropriate, as many are occupied by elderly tenants who are at home and using electricity all day, and installation would be easier on single-storey properties. A 21-and-a-half-year roof lease was agreed with the council. The electricity is provided to the tenants, saving them 100 to £200 per year and avoiding 330 tonnes of CO2 per annum. The project cost a million pounds. A community share issue opened in November 2014, closed in February 2015, and raised £750,000. Each investor could contribute between 100 and £100,000. The remaining 25% was raised from social loan finance. Installation started in April 2015 and the full scheme of 314 properties has now been completed. York Community Energy held an event on the 12th of September. The Manchester event was aimed at people already involved in projects. The York event, like many others across the country, set out to inform the general public to raise awareness and gather support. Speakers described existing projects, including a local community pub, as an example of what can be achieved by the community. The other projects were wind turbines, solar farms and hydro. York Council's sustainability officer made a presentation and the local MP and a number of councillors were in the audience. I acted as chair of the debate and there were more questions than time allowed. A number of visitors signed up to join the group and several people suggested roofs where solar panels might be installed. It's all about clean, cost-effective, renewable energy. I'll keep you informed of progress. Airqualitynews.com reports this week that environmental NGO Client Earth has threatened once again to take legal action against the UK government claiming that DEFRA's draft air quality plan isn't good enough and won't be good enough for the courts. After a five-year legal battle between Client Earth and DEFRA, the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, the UK Supreme Court ruled in April 2015 that the government must take immediate action to cut nitrogen dioxide pollution. As part of the ruling, DEFRA was ordered to produce a new UK air quality plan before the end of 2015, and a draft of this plan was published for consultation over the weekend. The plan re-evaluates expected dates for compliance with the EU legal air quality limits, bringing these dates sooner in many UK areas, and also sets out plans for a national framework of clean air zones. But DEFRA's plan, on which public views are being sought until the consultation closes in eight weeks' time on November the 6th, 
has attracted criticism from campaign group Clean Air in London and former Labour Party shadow environment minister Barry Gardner. And Client Earth also slammed the new draft plan as another list of meaningless assurances and half-measures and has insisted it will continue to try and force the government to come up with a lawful plan. Clean Air lawyer at Client Earth, Alan Andrews, said the Supreme Court ordered Environment Secretary Liz Truss to come up with a plan to achieve legal levels of air quality as soon as possible. Instead, even under the government's own projections, many cities in the UK will still have illegal levels of diesel fumes until 2020 and beyond. In London, the problem is even worse. DEFRA projections say that legal levels of air pollution will not be reached until 2025. The plans contain only one new national measure, clean air zones, which would restrict older vehicles entering the most polluted city centres, but leaving it up to overstretched and underfunded local authorities to implement them. We therefore don't have any idea if or when these clean air zones will ever materialise. Mr Andrews added, this simply isn't good enough. It isn't good enough for a client earth. It won't be good enough for the courts. Most importantly, it isn't good enough for the tens of thousands of people who this government is prepared to let die or be made seriously ill by being forced to breathe polluted air. We will do everything we can to force the government to come up with a lawful plan, including returning to court to force them to think again. Responding to client earth's threat of further court action, a DEFRA spokesperson said, Tackling air pollution is a priority for this government and we have asked local authorities and members of the public to come forward and share ideas on how to make our nation cleaner. From improving bus and taxi fleets to investing in cycling infrastructure and upgrading roads so they run more smoothly, we want to work with our great cities and help them make changes to become greater still. The UK has invested £2 billion in green transport since 2011 and our plans will see us go even further in making our cities into cleaner, healthier environments. In the same week as Jeremy Corbyn took over leadership of the Labour Party, Tony Abbott was ousted as Prime Minister of Australia. What's the effect on climate change? Probably not a lot. As part of his leadership manifesto, Corbyn produced a detailed paper on climate change and energy, including promises of... 10 energy pledges to reform our broken, dated and polluting energy market. Britain, he said, must lead the way in developing the energy systems of the future. He promised a million new green climate jobs, decent homes for all that are low carbon and affordable to keep warm, cleaner air, tackling the air pollution crisis in our big cities, protecting our ecosystems, supporting international standards of regulation of emissions and pollution. I heard at the time of the election that he'd proposed reopening the coal mines, although I couldn't find any mention of this in the manifesto documents. He's appointed Lisa Nandy to be Shadow Minister for the Department of Energy and Climate Change. Ms Nandy has been MP for Wigan since 2010. So far, her only ministerial experience has been as a junior Shadow Education Minister and as PPS to Tessa Jowell, the Shadow Minister for the Olympics. You could argue that this is academic, since the Labour Party is not in power, but at least it's clear that many of Corbyn's policies are at odds with the government, so we can hope that controversial legislation will be strongly opposed, clearly explained and debated. 
On the other side of the world, arch-denialist Tony Abbott has been replaced as Australian Prime Minister by climate believer Malcolm Turnbull. In 2008, Turnbull, leader of the Liberal opposition, supported the then Labour government's carbon pollution reduction scheme. This nearly split the party and cost Turnbull the leadership, which was taken over by Tony Abbott. The Australian Liberal Party remains very sceptical of climate change and Turnbull has indicated he will not change current policy. For the moment at least, Australia will remain a country with one of the biggest carbon footprints per head in the world, according to the World Bank. The Daily Mail reports that climate experts are warning that Britain could have an extremely cold and snowy winter. It turns out that the experts quoted are not the people at the Met Office, but scientists at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, in America. Strong El Ninos can result in more frequent and intense storms and heavy rain and snowfall in certain parts of the country, and an increase in tropical cyclones in the Pacific. El Nino is a pattern of ocean currents in the Pacific, which oscillate from close inshore to well out to sea and influence the weather. This year's El Nino is expected to be strong. The NOAA scientists don't say anything about UK weather, but the historic record does show that we have had hard winters in years when El Nino has been strong. Buy your winter woolies now. And finally, Baked Alaska, anyone? No, not a dessert. A new show from the Riding Lights Theatre. This week I went to the preview before the company set off on its UK tour. The show is about climate change, about exhausting resources and polluting the planet. It's about how we are responsible and about what we can do. Full marks to a cast of four for their versatility and enthusiasm. Full marks to the authors who are both well-informed and up-to-date. Full marks to the designer who produced a small, compact and amazingly versatile set. I just hope nobody catches their fingers in it. The problem with an important and difficult message is that if you don't emphasise it, people will forget and if you make it too scary, people will blot it out. Chatting to friends afterwards, we agreed that Baked Alaska delivered a powerful message, but the people who needed to hear it would probably not go. One group of people who will hear it, though, is MPs. At the end of each show, the cast handed out slices of Alaska, well, no, slips of paper, really, and everyone was encouraged to write a note to the local MP. All these notes will be personally delivered. Baked Alaska is touring over 50 venues across the UK between now and when the Paris Climate Conference starts on the 28th of November. It'll be coming to a venue near you, so don't miss it. Book at ridinglights.org. That's ridinglights.org. Well, that's it for another week. Next week there will be more sustainable futures to talk about. Maybe you'd like to voice an opinion or add an insight. I'd love to interview you. And with the wonders of Skype, it doesn't matter where in the world you are. Just contact me at mail at anthony-day.com. This is Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Show. And that's all for now. Thank you.